Let's pray. Father, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him clearly and know him and see what it means to follow him. Help us to do that even in this ancient story written so long ago before Jesus came, yet pointing to him. Help us to see that now. Amen. Well, here's our question this morning. Is God really in control? For some people, this is the knockdown argument, the reason they need not engage any further at all with Christianity. Look at the world around us, they say. Look at the chaos, the pandemic, the poverty, the death and pain and suffering. If God is in control, well, he's doing a pretty bad job at things. If God is not in control, well, what kind of God is that? Of course, some Christians want then to respond by saying, well, no, no, you've misunderstood. We, we, we don't believe God's in control either. He, he's deliberately not getting involved, which might sound it lets, like it lets God off the hook. But actually, it raises other questions instead. You see, if, if God is all good and all loving and has the power to get involved if he wants, if God in Jesus could calm a storm with a word and heal the sick, well, what's he doing? Sitting back and choosing not to be in control when he could be. If God is love, is that really a loving thing to do? Well, the story of Joseph is about these kinds of questions. We began to see this last week. This is a story about the God who is at work in all things for good. And the verses we heard read are about this question too, about the God who is in control. But what does that mean? How can that be? And if he is in control, why is the world such a mess and often so painful? That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. But first of all, let's remind ourselves of what happens. Last week, we heard about the feud between Joseph and his brothers caused by Jacob, his father, picking out Joseph as his favorite. And along with that, God sent two dreams of how one day the whole family would bow down and serve this young man. And the brothers are furious and they hate him. And the scene changes in verse 12 now in chapter 37 at the beginning of our reading, and they head off to Shechem. And in due course, Jacob sends his favorite son to join them and bring news of them. And when he arrives at Shechem, he just happens to be found by a man as he wanders around aimlessly in the fields. Have you seen my brothers? Ah, the man says, they've moved on to Dothan. Well, off he goes. But scene change again. We come to the brothers who see him coming in the distance, and they immediately plot to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they say. Let's kill him. Let's, let's chuck him in a waterhole, a cistern. Let's make up a story about wild animals attacking him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. His dreams, remember, we know are from God because they came twice. That's not often how dreams work today, but it is how they work in the story of Joseph. So when they say, let's kill him instead, this is a knowing rejection of what God has said and therefore a rejection of God himself they hate the implications of God's subversive dreams that he sent and they hate them so much that they will do anything they can to try and frustrate them so who's in control 
Let's see. Well, first, Reuben tries to do something about this. Maybe because he's in his father's bad books for previous indiscretion a few chapters earlier, he can't risk further alienation from him as his oldest son. So he says, let's, let's, just, let's just throw him in, but let's, let's not kill him. And he's thinking, so I can, you know, we can come along and we can rescue him. I can rescue him later, take him back home safely. Well, now Joseph arrives and they strip him of his ornamental robe, the coat of many colours, or maybe just the luxuriously long-sleeved coat. We don't quite know, but they're very jealous of it, and they chuck him in the empty cistern. And then, what's this? They, having done that, they sit down and they have a meal. With their brother lying silent, is he injured? They don't care. He's in the cistern. And a caravan or a convoy of Ishmaelites turns up heading to Egypt. And now it's Judah's turn. Not so much a pang of guilt as an opportunity for financial gain. Look, lads, murder doesn't pay, literally. Let's sell him. After all, he's our brother. Hmm, yes, that's exactly how one ought to treat a brother. And so he gets sold. They're called uh, the Midianites that they're sold to in verse 28, but they're the same people, the Ishmaelites. Reuben comes back and he finds Joseph gone and he panics. What can I do now? So the sons turn to deception. They take the robe, they slaughter a goat, they dip it in blood. Do you remember who else in Genesis deceived his father with clothing and a slaughtered goat that he turned into a stew? Well, it was Jacob, of course who deceived his father Isaac and made him think that he was Esau. And now the deceiver is deceived. We found this. Examine this to see whether it is your son's robe. And Jacob gets it at once. Joseph has obviously been eaten by some wild animal, and it's all over for Jacob. If the aim of Joseph's brothers was to get rid of Joseph in order to have their father's affections refocused on them once again, well, that plan is a dismal failure. Jacob mourns many days. All his sons and daughters come to comfort him, but he won't be comforted. This is it now till I die, he says. Meanwhile, the Midianites or the Ishmaelites in Egypt sell Joseph on. And he finds himself in, of all places, the household of one of Pharaoh's officials. And the credits roll, and we have to come back next week for the next thrilling instalment, but not before some post-episode analysis, because we need to think about this question, is God really in control? God isn't actually mentioned in these verses, I wondered if you noticed that. And yet if we look carefully, we can see that these verses are here to show us, yes, God really is in control. First of all, we can see he is in control of everything that happens. He's in control of everything that happens. See, this is a story of apparent coincidences. The story has an end point. Joseph ends up in Egypt, which is where he needs to be in order in the end to provide for his family in the following chapters and, and to provide for the people of God when famine comes to Canaan. That is the end point of all this. But how does he get there? Well, what happens is, is, is his father happens to send him, doesn't he? He happens to send him to find his brothers, but they just happen to have moved on. And, and maybe Joseph at that point might have just given up and gone home again. But this man finds him wandering in the fields and sends him to Dothan. 
Now, if he'd found his brothers in Shechem, well, they might still have tried to kill him, but there would have been no traders heading past to Egypt and no chance for Judah to seize the commercial opportunity. Reuben is kind of on Joseph's side, so he has to be absent then when the camels come past so that Judah can suggest selling Joseph without Reuben interfering. And finally, this deception that they come up with of Jacob has to work, or or otherwise the family would surely have been torn apart even further, maybe irreparably, and they would never have made it to Egypt anyway. So can you see, it's a massive series, this chapter, this second half of this chapter, of what at the time would have seemed random coincidences of the kind that happen every day in every person's life. History often works like this, doesn't it? You know, the classic example is the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in August 1914, kicking off the First World War. And it seems it all turns on the decision of the assassin Gavrilo Princip to sit down outside a cafe and eat a sandwich because he's part of a little group of conspirators, and their first attempt at assassination with a hand grenade failed an hour or two earlier. And so he's kind of feeling sorry for himself, and he thinks, well, what do I do now? I better go and have a sandwich. And so he sits down outside the cafe, and then the motorcade containing the Duke, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, takes a wrong turn, randomly, and ends up on this back street, going past the cafe where Princip is sitting outside eating his sandwich, and he doesn't waste his second chance, and he takes out his gun and he shoots the Duke. Now, that is the true story. That is, you know, that is how the First World War started. Now, you, know, you can say maybe the war would have started anyway for another reason, but there is nevertheless always this sense of how little twists of history can seem to change everything. And we might know the same feeling in our own lives. If, if he'd only driven that day and not walked, he wouldn't have been run over and killed. Or more positively, someone might say, well, you know, if she hadn't happened to be at my friend's house that day, I'd never have met her and we wouldn't be married. Or if I'd accepted a different job, an offer of a different job after I left university, I'd be living in a different city with a different job and a different group of friends and my life would look utterly different. Now, many people will say, well, it's just all random, you know, just just run with it, enjoy it when you can, but the Christian knows different. As we said, God isn't mentioned in this chapter, but God is very much here. He, He has a plan to save the world with a people descended from Abraham. And for that to happen, they need to experience their own rescue story, to be redeemed from slavery in Egypt so that they understand that the God who's called them to this uh, ministry to bless the world is a God of mercy and grace. And so they can proclaim this God to the world. That is the plan. And for that to happen, Joseph needs to get to Egypt. So is God in control? Yes, he's in control. Even in the most random looking of circumstances, he's getting his man where he needs to be. That means we we can be confident today that the smallest of circumstances are within his control. Now, some people find that worrying or troublesome. 
And I think particularly when we go through difficult times of suffering, or whether it's bereavement or bullying or redundancy or, or simply being wearied by the weariness of a world messed up by sin. And we think, how, how can God be intending these things to happen? And the story of Joseph reminds us we can't always answer that at the time. It may not be clear for years and years and years. It may never be clear till Jesus returns. <clears throat> you think of believers like Job, you have to suffer with very deep suffering and pain. And uh, obviously, you know, no obviously neatly explainable purpose for what he went through. But here's the thing. The alternative to God being in control is that he's not in control at all. And that surely is even more terrifying. That the circumstances we find ourselves in are just random. And we might, you know, we step outside the door in the morning and we go and anything could happen. And it's all totally random. And, you know, we're just subject to the, to, the, to the atoms of the universe having their way. A sense of what we call the sovereignty of God, of him being in control, is what will help us with our anxiety and our fears. With those what-if questions that we ask ourselves at 3 a.m., those, those anxieties about accidents or, or about serious illnesses or you know, how would I cope if this whatever it is that we're worried about might, would happen to me or my family but this is a God who has the whole world in his hands nothing happens without his say so and if that's true the question that follows then is can we trust him can we trust him because there are people and things that I wouldn't want to be in charge of every detail of the universe. Isn't that right? Dennis the Menace, Darth Vader, the Joker. You know, there are plenty of characters in fiction or in real life, and you can think, well, if that kind of person was, was the god of the universe, that would be utterly terrifying. But is that who God is? Is that what he's like, who he's like? Is that the God we meet in Jesus Christ? That is the question, isn't it? With his compassion and his self-giving love and his commitment to others and to the world. As we, as you, as we read the Gospels and as we read the accounts of Jesus and we, we see him there, we need to ask ourselves, can I trust this man who is God with my life? And Christians are people who've answered yes this is somebody i can trust that when i learn that he's in control of every circumstance in all things i think good news this is a god i can trust he's in control in every circumstance so that's the first thing we can see from this chapter but then secondly more than that we can see shockingly god is in control even in our sin god is in control even in our sin well this kind of follows on from him being in control in every circumstance but it's quite an uncomfortable thing to think about and it's worth thinking through what we mean what we have to get our heads around is how here in genesis in chapter 37 do you see god is even using the sin of joseph's brothers to bring about his plan can you see how that is we, we saw this you know when, when they plotted 
to kill him. And, uh, you know, about, about verse 18, 19, 20, when they plot to kill him, they, they are consciously thinking, we don't like these dreams that it's clear that God has sent. We are pushing back against God and his plan. We don't want that. That is sin, isn't it? That is what the Bible calls sin, is rejecting God. And, and more than that, they then conspire to murder, which clearly is not okay. It's against God's law. It's against the way that he wants his people to live. So can you see God is, in, in being in, in control in every circumstance and in using Joseph's brothers to get him to Egypt, he's even in control of the sin that Joseph's brothers are doing. And it's things like that which make people kind of pull back and say, well, hang on a minute. Well, surely this must mean that God isn't really in control. Because surely he wouldn't will people to sin. Now, it's a serious thing, and we need to think about it carefully. But the thing is, there are many, many examples through the whole Bible story where the way God's plan comes about even involves individual people sinning against him. We can see that here. We can see it in in Exodus. When Moses writes in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Can you see God? God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen to Moses and Aaron as they come and say, you know, you've got to let my people go. Why does Pharaoh reject? Because God had hardened his heart to sin against God and his plan. And we see later in the Old Testament, he summons the Assyrians and the Babylonians to bring destruction on his own people. They aren't acting righteously when they do that, but they are doing what God wants them to do to bring about his plan. And the, the best example of this is what happens at Jesus, when Jesus dies. And we heard Peter explain it in Acts chapter 2 in the second reading. We heard, this is the speech on the day of Pentecost, Peter says this, this man talking about Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Do you see, Jesus' death was all part of his plan, his set purpose and foreknowledge. But along with wicked men, he was put to death. See, those who put Jesus to death are Wicked, Peter says. It was a wicked, evil sin. It was the greatest sin ever committed to put the Son of God to death when he came as man. But it was willed by God to bring about the salvation of his people. So these things are, both these things are true. God is totally in control, and yet human beings are totally responsible for the sin that we commit. As far as we're concerned, we live with real choices to make and we always do what what is in our hearts that we want to do, even if it's also what God wants to happen for some reason. And that is the key to understanding this. The fact that God is in control doesn't make him what you might call the author of sin because his motives in doing what he does are not the same as ours. That's the key to understanding this. His motives in doing this are not the same as ours. When Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him, their motive was just evil. This is what made it a sin. 
But God's motive was not just to do evil to Joseph, but to make it possible for him to be taken to Egypt and in the end contribute to the salvation of his family and in the end the salvation of the world. You see, same action, different motives. Now, it, it's quite hard for us to get our heads around that in many ways. Of course it is. But our response to that should be, wow, God is that good that he's able to transform even human sin into action that brings about the greatest possible good. And again, we can take comfort in God's control in this area. You see, if sin is done to us, well, that can be real and it can be painful. And yet, even in the pain, we can know God is working all things for good, as he promises. We may, we may not at the time see how that is. We may just throw our hands up and say, I don't get it. Too much. Can't cope. But we can, even in that, trust that he is. And we can also know that God is in control, often preventing greater sin from happening. We, know, we all know in our hearts where sin starts, and often if we actually carried out what our hearts plot or imagine in our anger or our jealousy or our lust, if we actually did those things, the outcome for ourselves and those around us would be utterly catastrophic. But God is mercifully restraining us from being as evil as we possibly could be. And maybe we've been hurt by another person or even by a, you know, a Christian leader who's turned out not to be the person that we thought they were. And we're kind of examining all that we learned from them and wondering if their significant failures invalidate all the good they seem to do. Well, we can know God is in control even in our sin and the sin of others. He can use sinners to preach the gospel. He can use sinners to teach the truth. He can use sinners to do good, even with the worst of motives and intentions. Now, this never, ever excuses sin. It never, ever means sinners should not be held responsible or brought to justice if that is appropriate in a particular situation, but it means we can trust the God of the universe in the worst of circumstances. So God is in control in every circumstance. He's in control even in our sin. And then thirdly, finally, God is in control in making our lives cross-shaped. In making our lives cross-shaped. What do I mean by cross-shaped? Well, the life of Jesus was cross-shaped. You see, he suffered and he died and then he was raised to glory. In other words, what was Jesus' life like? Well, it wasn't one of comfort and ease and, you know, everything going swimmingly and wonderfully and all coming together and everything being great. No, it wasn't like that. It wasn't victory-shaped. It was cross-shaped. And that is prefigured here in the life of Joseph to give us yet another picture of how God works in this way. You see, here is, did you, see, did you hear in the story these little things which point forwards to Jesus? Here is a father sending his son. Here is a son whose own brothers plot against him, who is stripped of his clothing, who is silent before his brothers. It's very striking. We heard a lot from Joseph's lips in verses 1 to 11 in, in chapter 37, but in these verses from verse 12 onwards, he says nothing at all. Much like Jesus, if you think about it, in the accounts of his trial and his death. Questions are put to him and he is 
silence. And after he goes down into the pit, Joseph is brought out and vindicated. See, that is Joseph's story, and it's the story of Jesus, who's who suffered and whose death means we can be clothed in his righteousness because of his blood. Jacob was deceived by the blood of the goat, but God sees the blood of his son and he knows exactly whose blood it is and he welcomes sinners into his family because of that. And because that's the shape of Joseph's life and the shape of Jesus's life, it is the story and the shape of our lives as well, when we put our trust in Jesus. See, we get to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus in this cross-shaped life, knowing that when we encounter difficulty and we encounter strange circumstances and pain and suffering of the greatest possible kind, even when that happens and we don't understand and when we encounter sin in others or in ourselves and we despair and we think, why does it have to be like this? We can know When we're in Christ, our lives are meant to be cross-shaped. Like Joseph, like Jesus. It's not a life of ease and comfort here and now. It is a cross-shaped life where resurrection is the other side of death. And until we die to ourselves and our own selfish desires for our own pleasure, we can't begin to live. Is God in control? Yes, he is, in every circumstance, even in our sin. Can he be trusted? Well, yes, he can. We can trust him to shape our lives, to make us more like Jesus in all things, to give us cross-shaped lives that point to him. Let's just have a moment of quiet to reflect and to pray by ourselves for a moment now.